Welcome to Hanchuk Targets History. I'm your host, Tim Hanchuk. Thanks for joining me this episode. You know, I've been teaching high school history for way too many years, and I love talking about this stuff. So let me share with you some interesting, unique, and little-known historical events. I know you'll be entertained, and if you're not careful, you just might learn something too. So, let's lock and load and take a shot at that target of history and see what we can hit. Let's take a walk down range and see what the target shows us. Well, it looks like today we're going to be bringing an end to the Wars of the Roses with the Battle of Bosworth Field, which was fought on August 22nd, 1485. This battle was fought in Leicestershire and was, of course, immortalized in Shakespeare's play Richard III. Let's see what happened. Let's start our story with Edward IV on the English throne. On April 9th, 1483, he died rather unexpectedly. This put his eldest son on the throne as Edward V. The problem here was that Edward was only 12 years old. Because he was underage, he had to have a regent rule for him. In this case, his regent was his uncle, Richard, Duke of Gloucester. He was given the title of Lord High Protector of the Realm. Arrangements were made for Edward V's coronation to take place on June 22, 1483, but before this could happen, the marriage of his parents, the deceased Edward IV and his queen Elizabeth, was declared bigamous and therefore invalid. It really wasn't, but that was the claim. Anyway, this now made Edward V illegitimate and barred him from inheriting the throne. Richard was Edward IV's younger brother, so if Edward IV's children were barred from the throne, Richard would be the next in the order of succession. On June 25th, an assembly of lords and commoners in London endorsed a declaration to this effect and proclaimed Richard as the rightful king. He was crowned King Richard III on July 6, 1483. As for Edward V, he had been staying in the royal residence in the Tower of London, awaiting his coronation. He had been joined there by his younger brother Richard, Duke of York, who was like 10 years old. Of course, Richard's coronation put both of these young princes in the tower, as they were called, into a precarious position. And after August of that year, neither were ever seen in public again. What happened to him? They were most likely murdered. By whom? Well, that remains a mystery. Many people accused Richard of this foul deed, and odds are good he may have done it, although there were other suspects as well, so I guess we'll never really know. Anyway, back to the story. Even a number of supporters of the House of York were shocked by the disappearance of the young princes. Their old foe, the House of Lancaster, was still in the picture and still eager to claim the throne of England for themselves. The best hope for the Lancastrians was the exiled Henry Tudor, the Earl of Richmond. Henry was, through the illegitimate Beaufort line, a descendant of John of Gaunt, who was one of King Edward III's sons. <laughs> that wasn't much of a royal connection, but it was the best the Lancastrians had after the years of purges by the Yorkist side. Taking advantage of the discontent in Richard's court, 
Henry began to gather some powerful allies, including the Woodville family, which was the family of Edward IV's queen, Elizabeth Woodville. A number of other nobles who were unhappy with Richard's distribution of estates and or favors, and French King Charles VIII. France was, of course, always interested in any type of disruption that might limit England's power abroad, especially in Brittany. Henry's invasion of England was to coincide with the Duke of Buckingham leading a revolt against Richard. To make a long story short, the whole thing fell apart in November of 1483 due to poor planning and poor weather. This was a setback for Henry, but in April of 1484, Richard's son and heir to the throne died. This boosted the Lancastrian morale. If Richard could be taken out, the throne would be Henry's for the taking. On August 1st, 1485, Henry tried again and set off across the English Channel from Brittany to Milford Haven in South Wales. With him, he had a force of about two or 3,000 men. Most were French mercenaries, with only four or 500 being Englishmen. However, Henry's army would grow as he marched through Wales along the River Severn, through Shrewsbury, Coventry, and finally the area around Leicester. Henry had offered the Welsh baron, Rees Ap Thomas, the lieutenancy of Wales in exchange for his support. That boosted his army by 800 men. He got another 500 from William Ap Griffith via North Wales, and 500 from Gilbert Talbot, the uncle of the Earl of Shrewsbury. This gave Henry a force of around 5,000 men, but even this was still less than what he'd potentially be facing when he ran into Richard's forces. Henry realized that to improve his chances, he would have to somehow persuade some of Richard's men to defect to his side either before or during the approaching battle. Now, on top of having numerically inferior forces, Henry's troops were also limited by the fact that many were conscripted farmers with limited battle experience. On top of this, they were not well armed, with most being archers or spearmen. That being said, though, he did have his French mercenaries, plus units of mounted knights for his heavy cavalry. Henry himself was not very experienced in terms of command, but he did have the battle experience of his uncle, Jasper Tudor, the Earl of Pembroke, John de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, and the leader of the French mercenaries, Philibert de Chandy. When Richard heard news of Henry's invasion, he left Nottingham Castle and assembled his supporters. His army consisted of a similar mix of troops to Henry's, but with somewhat better arms and certainly more cavalry. He had somewhere between 8,000 and 12,000 men. He also had some heavy artillery pieces, while Henry's forces only had a handful of light field guns. Unfortunately for Richard, he had known that Henry was planning to invade, but he was unsure of where the invasion would actually take place. As a result, he had placed loyal nobles and troops all around England. Ultimately, this would mean that he had less men at Bosworth Field than he could have had, and he didn't want to wait for more forces to arrive. Richard wanted to engage Henry as soon as possible 
before more nobles could defect to his side. Let's face it, Richard did have some definitely unreliable allies. Among them was Sir William Stanley, his nephew, Lord Strange, was being held hostage by Richard in an attempt to ensure Stanley's loyalty. Stanley would have a thousand men at Bosworth Field, and so his support would prove vital to whichever side he gave it to. Another was Henry Percy, the Earl of Northumberland, who would flat out refuse to engage his troops until he had a clear idea of who was winning the battle. <laughs> Ouch, that can't be good. And odds were that Richard probably had an idea of the treachery that was in the air, like his past dark deeds were coming back to haunt him. Despite these unreliable allies, Richard did have an ace in the hole, and that was himself. He was a very experienced field commander, having fought in numerous battles over the past 14 years. He was definitely the kind of king who was more than able to defend his throne on the battlefield. According to one anonymous eyewitness, as recorded in a letter the following year, Richard was determined to settle the issue on the day of the battle. He stated, God forbid I yield one step. This day I will die a king or win. On August 22, 1485, Henry's force met Richard's army at Market Bosworth, a small village, or I should say the field right outside of it. The king's army, which had arrived first on the ground, formed up on top of Ambien Hill, with Richard himself commanding from the center, wearing his battle crown and royal arms. The spot he picked could see the entire battlefield, and he had the added advantage of marshland protecting his flank. Now look, we really don't have reliable eyewitness accounts of this battle. We have a lot of conflicting later reports. And the battle raged for three hours, so here's kind of a basic breakdown of what we know. It's thought that Henry's forces charged first, and then Richard's front lines raced down the hill to meet them. Henry's troops stood their ground and reformed into a wedge shape, which started pushing Richard's forces back. Now Richard, who was again up on Ambien Hill, saw that Henry was at the very rear of his lines with only a small number of troops around him. Deciding that the quickest way to end the battle was to go straight at Henry and cut him down, Richard charged down the hill with his heavy cavalry. This was kind of a reckless act by Richard, but it's thought that he was kind of forced into this because Northumberland had refused to mobilize his troops from the rear and bring them up into the central action. And as a matter of fact, Northumberland's troops would remain inactive throughout the battle. Richard fought bravely, and perhaps a little recklessly, in his effort to kill Henry himself. Richard, although managing to strike down Henry's standard bearer, had his horse cut out from under him. And yes, that's where we get Shakespeare's famous line, A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. Richard was killed when Sir William Stanley finally decided which side he was going to support and directed his 500 cavalry force to further encircle Richard, cutting him off from his own troops. 
Richard received many grievous wounds before he was finally dispatched by a Welsh pikeman. Richard was the first English king to be killed in battle since Harold at the Battle of Hastings in 1066, and Richard was the last English monarch to fall on the battlefield. With Richard's death, the Yorkists quit the field, already having suffered heavy casualties, including the Duke of Norfolk. Henry had won the battle, and, because Richard had no heir, he had also won the throne. Richard's body was slung across the back of a mule and removed from the field. It was displayed in the church of St. Mary in Newark, near the battleground, and then buried at Greyfriars Abbey, Leicester. In 2012, archaeologists excavated the site where they believed the ruins of Greyfriars Abbey were. Digging down from like what was a car park, for you Americans that would be a parking lot, they found a skeleton that was male, had a whole mess of sword and dagger injuries, and most intriguingly, suffered from curvature of the spine, one of Richard's supposed ailments. Researchers from the University of uh, Leicester conducted DNA testing, and they confirmed with a 99.9% probability that it was the skeleton of Richard III. His remains were reinterred in a new purpose-built tomb in Leicester Cathedral. According to legend, Henry Tudor was given Richard's crown, supposedly found by Stanley beneath a bush at Bosworth Field. The new king was crowned Henry VII. Loyal followers were rewarded, such as Stanley, who was made Earl of Derby, Constable of England. Other figures, such as the Earl of Northumberland, got their comeuppance, as Henry imprisoned them, figuring that they were pretty untrustworthy. The former Yorkist queen, Elizabeth Woodville, was given an honorable retirement, and later on, Henry married Elizabeth of York, the daughter of Edward IV and Mary Woodville. This united the two rival houses, and of course, this is the beginning of the Tudor dynasty. Henry VII would be followed by some other incredibly well-known Tudor monarchs. But talking about them, well, that would be another story. And there you have it, kind listeners. Thank you for tuning in. You know, if you like this episode please tell your friends and check out some of my other episodes. And I very much look forward to talking with you again in two weeks.